Our scripture now is Hebrews chapter 9, 11 to 14. Hebrews 9, 11. The blood of Christ for a cleansed conscience. The blood of Christ for a cleansed conscience. Hebrews 9, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the blood of Christ, and it is only by this blood that we are cleansed of our conscience, our evil conscience, our dead works. We thank you, Lord, that you have made this powerful blood applicable to us. That's why we come. That's why we worship you. We pray, Father, that you'll show us from your holy word more of this truth, and may we bask in it. May we never compromise, and may we have greater faith in this blood of Christ for our redemption. May we put our hope in no one else, nothing else, but Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, when we think of a topic like the blood of Christ, in some circles, it is a very odd subject. In some circles, to speak of the blood of anyone seems like a very strange and awkward thing to discuss, a very strange and awkward thing to study. Why study about blood? Unless you're, you are a medical doctor or a nurse, why study about blood? Who wants to talk about blood? Who wants to think about blood? especially in a religious context and especially in a religious worship service. We are Christians, are, are we not? And we're sophisticated, are we not? We are living in the modern era, are we not? We're living in a good country, in a good place, are we not? So why should we talk about dirty things, things that could also be dangerous to the touch or to the mouth or whatever if we're exposed in the wrong way? Why talk about this? Well, many people have this thinking. Many people believe we should not be thinking about the blood of Christ for those kinds of reasons. But also they think we should not talk about the blood of Christ because in the Bible, the blood of Christ is the only means of salvation. The only means of salvation. The blood of Christ is the only way for us to be redeemed from our sins. It's the only way. And it is also for that reason that many people, also within Christianity, do not want to talk about the blood of Christ because they understand if we talk about the blood of Christ and we study the blood of Christ, then you are implying that that is the only way of salvation. And you can't do that because we, after all, we are swell people, we're sophisticated people, we're smart, we don't need you to tell us because we do enough good things we just stay away from some of the major sins, and otherwise we're fine, happy, swell people. That's the way we are. That's what we think of ourselves. And also, we can't say 
that the average Hindu and the Buddhist and the Muslim and the atheists, because they live a generally moral life, that these people, they need to know about the blood of Christ and believe in the blood of Christ. The more you say that, the more it's repulsive, people think. The more we think about that, the more we assert that, the more repulsive it is. And in fact, there are many Hindus, Buddhists and Muslims, that will actually mock, ridicule, denigrate the blood of Christ because they think that it is completely absurd for God, if there is a God, and our God is the true God, it would be completely absurd in their mind to think that salvation, redemption, eternal life, forgiveness of sins would be dependent upon the blood of one individual. They think it is completely absurd to believe any of that. This is the kind of reaction missionaries have many times when they go to foreign countries and speak of Jesus dying on the cross. However, we should not have any of those notions whatsoever in our minds. We must be so convinced and so, so uh, confident in what Jesus has done coming into the world and what the Bible says Jesus has done coming into the world that it is our only hope. It is our only confidence. It is our only source of salvation. That's the kind of place we have to come to and have this kind of boldness whenever we speak to others. To tell others not to put confidence in the flesh, not to put confidence in themselves or anyone else, but only in Christ. And the means is the blood of Christ. So let's see what our passage says about this blood of Christ and how important it is. It is so important as we've said earlier, our conscience can only be cleansed by this blood, not by any other means. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Verse 11. What does Jesus accomplish? He appeared as a high priest. Remember, he appeared as a high priest in a unique way, not through the tribe of Levi, not as a descendant of Aaron, not in that way, but by the call of God and by the oath of God, he came into the world as a high priest. Prophesied in Psalm 110, verse 4, that he would come as a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So therefore, his priesthood, if God predicts that he will come into the world and God endows him with a unique priesthood, we ought to give attention to why. Why did God give him this? Because it's a priesthood of the good things to come. The priesthood of the tribe of Levi had to do with animal sacrifices and had to do with many things that were necessary right now and necessary for them to be in right standing with God. And if they understood the typology, if they understood the symbolism of the sacrifices, then it benefited them. But if they did not understand them, they did not believe in them, they thought it incredulous that a prophecy of Messiah or Christ will come and then that he would die on the cross, that they didn't believe in that looking to the future, then it would have been no benefit to them. But here he says, what Christ did was of the good things to come. What, what does he mean? He's talking about eternal life. He's saying that in the life to come, in the world to come, eternal life, 
Jesus came as a high priest to make sure, to guarantee our access to eternal life of those good things to come. The good things to come have to do with the resurrection of the dead. The good things to come have to do with no more experience of evil, no more experience of, of sin, no more experience of slander and betrayal, no more experience of persecution, no more experience of poor health, Ill, illness, fatal diseases, horrible diseases, no more atrocities, no more mass murderers, no more mass rapists, no more drugs, no more anything like this, no more death. These are the good things to come. That is an escape from the evils we experience now, but also the presence of God. The good things to come has to do with the presence of God forever, because in God there is the absence of all these evils. In God there is only enjoyment, there is only pleasure. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand are pleasures forever, Psalm 16, 11. In the presence of God is going to be where full enjoyment is. That's all we should want. That's all we should need. And where do we find it? In Christ. Because He is the high priest of the good things to come. To be with the Lord forever and ever. When we are with Him, nothing else matters. Nothing else should matter. Because we are conscious of Him and have the full experience that we can as finite beings to be in the presence of the infinite forever and ever. Jesus came for this. He came to grant us access to this. And how did he do so? He did it by entering through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Now, there are a couple of ways to interpret this passage. Is he talking about his own physical body? Or is he talking about heaven where God the Father is? I believe he's talking about heaven where God the Father is, though we know that his body was the way in which God tabernacled or made a dwelling among us from John 1.14. In the beginning, John 1.1 and 1.14, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or literally tabernacled among us. We do know that Jesus came in his incarnation, in his fleshly body, to come into the world to live perfectly and die on the cross for us. So that is a perfect tabernacle. Jesus' own body was that. But is that what he means here? I believe he means actually heaven. And why do I say that? In verse 20, 23 and 24. Hebrews 9, 23 and 24. He says, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, for Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. See where he says in verse 24, for Christ did not enter, he uses the same concept as in verse 11, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. And in verse 24, he did not enter a holy place made with hands, which is like verse 11, not made with hands. And then in 24, but into heaven itself. He went into heaven itself. That's where the Father is, God the Father. So nothing in heaven was made by human hands. Nothing in heaven was made by human hands. 
So of course that would be supreme. Of course that would be superior to anything here. Heaven itself. And that's where Jesus entered. The priests of the earth, the Aaronic priests, never did that. They went into the most holy place annually with blood. In the most holy place of the tabernacle, one of them went once a year, one day a year on the Day of Atonement, they went into there, but they never went into heaven like that. They never went into heaven to present any blood to offer themselves or their own blood or the blood of any animals. They never went into heaven, but Jesus did. Of course then, his sacrifice and what, where he entered would be superior to anything the priests would do. And furthermore, he not only went into a better place, not made with hands, verse 12, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. When Jesus entered heaven, he did not go with the blood of goats and calves. He did not go with the blood of animals. Remember, we should not think that the death of an animal should or could suffice for the forgiveness of our sins. How could a lesser creature pay the penalty for our sins? And how many of those creatures would need to die to pay the penalty for our sins? Don't we sin many times a day in thought, word, and deed? And if so, then why don't we offer one animal for every sin that we commit every day? And then the question is, what kind of animal? What size animal? Why don't we do that every day? If that, why didn't they do it every day? They didn't. They couldn't do it. It was impossible for them to do it every day. It was impossible for millions upon millions of the people of Israel to go to the tabernacle every day for their numerous sins with a multiple, uh, multiplicity of animals to present to the priests. There is no way anybody could do that. Anybody. That would be completely impossible. And why is it impossible? Because God's teaching them that's not the way. It's only a symbol of the way. It's only a symbol of the way, so do you understand the symbol? Do you understand that it's not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, by the death of Christ? By the death of Christ, that is the only way, and he offered his own blood. He died on the cross for our own sins, for our sins, not for his sins. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He said to his accusers, which one of you convicts me of sin? There was nothing wrong, nothing impure in him, in thought, word, and deed. He lived perfectly as a man. He was the only perfect man who ever lived on the face of the earth. The only one for 33 and a half years until he died and rose again from the dead, appeared over a period of 40 days, ascended into heaven throughout that whole time. He never committed one sin. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. That's the way Jesus was, as a man. So his own blood. But then we might also ask, if we die because we sin, because we sin, we die. If that is the case with us, then would it not be logical to say that since Jesus did not sin, then he saved himself, but he could not save others, right? If our sins cause our own death, then if Jesus did not sin, would not Jesus' lack of sin 
only save himself, only save his own soul, his own human soul? No. And why? Because Jesus was not merely a perfect man, which is right and good. We needed him to be that way. But he was God in human flesh, the second person of the Trinity. He was the Son, the Son of God who came and took upon a human body. Remember, John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God, but he was also God in the sense that he possessed deity. He possessed a divine nature. He was the Son of God before he came into the world. He always has lived in eternity past. He, he the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, in eternity past, three persons, one God, had perfect love and perfect communion from eternity past. So, he, the Son, took upon human flesh. And because he has a divine nature, an eternal nature, a perfect, immense, infinite nature as a divine being, and then when he takes human flesh, because of his person, therefore, his death can pay the penalty for not just his sins, if he had committed any, but all of our sins. You see, he did not commit any sins, so there's no need to pay for his sins. So when he dies on the cross, he doesn't die for himself, he dies for us. And any number of us, if we believe in him. And why can it be any number of us? Of course, it's all the chosen ones, but we don't know the exact number. We just know that it's a great multitude in heaven, which no one could count, like the stars and like the sand of the seashore. That's the way it will be. Among the ones he redeems, he can redeem any number of us. And it is an immense number that he redeems. And why? Because he's not just a perfect human, but he is God in human flesh. Perfect God, holy God, infinite God, eternal God in human flesh. Therefore, his sacrifice pays for numerous people's sins if we believe in him. Then he says here in verse 12, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. How many times do the priests and the Levites have to go to the temple? They have to go all the time. They have to go frequently with various rituals, various kinds of rituals and sacrifices. They go not only once a year, the high priest into the most holy place, but they go for festivals at various times of the year, for the Passover festival, for the Feast of Tabernacles, for the Day of Atonement, for the Feast of Booths. They have to go various times throughout the year and offer sacrifices for themselves and for the rest of the people. They have to go every month. There are new moon sacrifices. They have to go every month. They have to go every week. Every week, every Sabbath day, they have to enter in order, in order to offer sacrifices. And they have to go every day to offer sacrifices into the holy place. If they have to go so often, why put any confidence in that? If they have to go so often, why put any confidence in that? That relates to the number of sacrifices. The number of sacrifices itself shows that they are insufficient to pay for our sins. Then the frequency of sacrifices or the frequency of the days of sacrifices also show that they are insufficient for the forgiveness of our sins. We haven't spoken of the priests themselves being sinful men who need redemption themselves. 
they have to have sacrifices offered for themselves before they can perform it for the people. So if they are sinful men, why put any confidence in them? We have to look beyond them to what they signify, to what the sacrifices signify. And in the same way, he says, he entered the holy place once for all. He entered into heaven one time, one time for all eternity. Once for all. He didn't go again and again and again. He's not going back and forth, up and down, up and down, dying on the cross again, going up into heaven, dying again, going up into heaven. He doesn't do that. He did it just once. And that's because that's the only means of our salvation. It only needed to take place once. That's why. So, another reason why we should put confidence in his death. Though he is implying and has said explicitly elsewhere, such as at the end of the letter, he believes in Jesus' resurrection. He knows that Jesus not only died, but the vindication and the proof of the meaning of his death is in his resurrection. He's declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Because he rose from the dead, we know that his death was not just a good man dying for a good cause. It wasn't just a regular kind of death. Some noble man, some martyr who died for a good cause, but he did not rise from the dead, so whatever he might have said about it is not really, really true about it. But no, in the case of Christ, whatever he said about his death, we know to be true because he rose from the dead just like he predicted. He rose from the dead as he predicted, so that shows proof that what his death means is true. What he said it means, what Isaiah and David said it means, what Paul says it means, what Peter says it means, what the letter to the Hebrews says it means, whatever any of these scriptures says is the meaning of his death, we know to be true because he rose from the dead. The two go together. He died and rose again. He didn't just rise, he died. And he didn't just die, he rose again. The two are bound up together. So, here... When he says once for all, this is further proof. It did not have to, have to happen again and again. And what did he obtain? Eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. We needed to be redeemed. We had a debt. We had a huge certificate of debt written against us because we could not make the payment. And because we could not make the payment, that payment had an eternal punishment. And the only way to escape that eternal punishment is with eternal redemption. And who is going to provide eternal redemption? The eternal God in human flesh. As we said, Jesus had to be both fully God and fully man without sin. Only then could he obtain eternal redemption. Therefore, whatever is going on right now for 70 or 80 years of our life, whatever is going on right now, is nothing compared to the life to come, is nothing compared to eternity. We would be foolish, therefore, if we put our confidence in the things that go on right now and not prepare ourselves for eternity and for eternal redemption. We have to think about that. We have to pray about that. We have to consider it. We have to call others to consider it. We should compel them to come in. We should snatch them out of the fire because we're dealing with matters of life and death matters of eternal life and eternal death. We shouldn't take it lightly. We shouldn't be casual about it. We need to, with solemnity, 
approach people and ask them about their soul. Ask them where they think they're going when they die. If they're prepared for the day of judgment. If they're re ready to meet the eternal, holy, and righteous God on that day of judgment. And even especially to meet Jesus Christ. Because they think Jesus is their get out of jail free card to get to the Father. They think that Jesus is an easy way to the Father. When actually that's not the case. If they study Jesus and even the red letters of Jesus very carefully. Remember, there are some people who consider themselves red letter Christians. Now, there is a, a famous pastor, he's very old now, T Tony Campolo. He actually dubs his own ministry as Red Letter Christian Ministry, Tony Campolo. So there are people who do that, but even they are not doing it seriously. Nobody can say that I'm considering Jesus and I, my eternal destiny is secure because I believe in Jesus. They can't say that flippantly because they don't even understand what Jesus said in the Red Letters. He said many, many stern and harsh and serious things in his own words, in the red letters. And very few people contemplate those. Very few people consider those things in relation to their eternal soul and eternal life. Very few people do that. Jesus said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, in your name we cast out demons and in your name we prophesied and performed many miracles and Jesus will declare to them he said and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness Jesus said you brood of vipers how can you being evil do what is good either make the tree uh, good or make the tree uh, and, and then it's fruit good or make the tree evil and it's fruit evil it's either one way or the other you brood of vipers how should you escape the sentence of hell Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? These are strong, harsh words that Jesus said in the red letters of the Bible. And if Jesus said these things, how are we considering them? Are we considering eternal redemption, which is more important from the lips of Jesus Christ himself? Further, verse 13, he says, he now turns to the application of this specifically to our conscience. Verses 13 and 14. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In 13, he is referring to certain ordinances, certain regulations of animal sacrifices that Moses instituted in the law. He says that the blood of goats and bulls the, and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. He refers to these sacrifices and here he adds the ashes of a heifer. That is a red heifer would have to be offered and then burned and then its ashes were to be mingled with water and then it would have to be sprinkled. Now if that process or if that ritual needed to be performed for the people to obey God and do right in the sight of God, he's saying if that was necessary for the cleansing of the flesh, that is God expected them to do these things externally and if they did that, then God was pleased with them. If they didn't do it, they, God would not be pleased with them. And these 
cleansing rituals in order for them to have access, for them to have access to God, to enter into the court, into the holy place, into the most holy place. If all of this was necessary, otherwise they would be physically and even spiritually, but primarily physically unqualified to enter. If they could not enter and do one or the other, or even walk away believing that God was pleased with them, they could not have that without the death of these animals and without the ashes of the heifer and without the sprinkling. Now, if all of this will maintain this ministry of sacrifice from day to day, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience? You see, what he's saying is, they did those things and they could do those things without any spiritual desire. And if you read the Old Testament, you can tell that there were many Levites and Aaronites who did not care spiritually for what they were doing. They were in it just for the money. They were in it for the reputation. They were in it for a livelihood. They were not in it for the right spiritual reasons because they didn't believe in the spiritual part of it. But if they just did the right thing, then they did the right thing. That is, they offered the animals. They did this and that. They carried out their duties. But their conscience wasn't cleansed. Why? Because they didn't believe in it. Their conscience, their soul wasn't cleansed. Now, what did they have to believe in? And what is the way in which their conscience can be cleansed? He says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He says, The blood of Christ is the way that your conscience can be cleansed from dead works. Only the blood of Christ. So, if they believed in the coming of the death of Christ, then their conscience could be cleansed. If they would not believe in the coming of the death of Christ, their conscience could not be cleansed. So therefore, the blood of Christ has to do with cleansing the internal man cleansing the heart, cleansing the soul, cleansing that part of the inner man that needs eternal redemption. Yes, it starts on the inside and manifests itself on the outside. It is out of the heart that come forth evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, slanders, and all the other sins. That's from within the heart. So the heart has to be changed. The heart has to be cleansed. The conscience has to be changed. This is what is necessary. And only the blood of Christ can do it. Not the blood of a dead goat. Only the blood of Christ. The Son of God, Son of Man, in one person. Uniquely in Jesus of Nazareth. Only He can do that. Then He says here, Cleanse your conscience from dead works. Well, th that assumes that we all have dead works and an evil conscience, a filthy conscience, a dirty conscience. Does it not? He hasn't sought to prove that. We could go elsewhere to see where the scriptures uh, lay line after line or argument after argument in order to prove that we have dead works and evil conscience, such as Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. Clearly lay that out to us, that we are in need of redemption because our deeds are filthy. Our hearts are filthy. Everything about us is unclean, impure, and defiled, needy, needing to be cleansed. But here he assumes it. He just says, 
the blood of Christ will cleanse our conscience from dead works. So we have to first, in order to benefit from the blood of Christ, we have to believe in the deadness of our own condition. We have to understand, we have to believe in the deadness of our own condition. Dead works. We have not only a, a defiled conscience, but we have dead works. We have a defiled evil conscience, a conscience that is weighted down with sin, the guilt of our sin that needs to be relieved. How can that be relieved? We have dead works. We don't have living works. We have dead works, and we need the living God to serve the living God. Why are they dead? They're dead because before our conversion, we don't have faith. And Romans 14, 23 says, whatever is not from faith is sin. So whatever does not emanate from faith, whatever that does not come as a product of faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. Before our conversion, everything we do, even the good things we do, that is, we go to work, we come home, we're married, we, we feed our families. We, th those are good things. Unbelievers do that all the time, right? They take care of their homes. They, they seek to live a respectable life in, in society. Many unbelievers do this. But they're not good works for salvation. They're good in a civil way. They're good in, in terms of culture and keeping stability in society. But they're not good for our salvation. They are dead works because they're not offered in faith. They're not done in faith. They're also not done with the love of God in mind. It, we love because He first loved us. So if God first loves us, and then we love Him, and then love our neighbor, then God is pleased. But if we don't love God, and we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, then God is displeased. They cannot be merits, they cannot be good deeds to present to God for our salvation. They are considered dead works. Furthermore, before Christ, we live for our own glory. We live for our own man-glory. We live for our own uh, reputation in front of others. We want everybody to praise us. We want everybody to like us. Before our conversion, we live for our own glory. We don't live for the glory of God. But after our conversion, we live for Him. We live to please Him. We don't live for ourselves, we live for Him. It is in these ways that our works, our deeds, everything we perform before faith in Christ, they are worthless. And we have an evil conscience, evil, guilty, defiled conscience that needs to be redeemed, that needs to be transformed, that needs to be made alive, that needs to be made spiritually sensitive to the things of God. And look at the sequence of events. He says, the blood of Christ... Uh, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. To serve the living God. Only, it's only possible to serve the living God. Not a dead God, not an idol, not a statue that cannot breathe, cannot, that has eyes but cannot see, ears but cannot hear, a mouth but cannot speak. We're not worshiping anyone or anything like that. We're worshiping the living God, the only true and living God. Not the idols of the nations, but the true and living God. That is only possible if the living God, through the blood of Christ, cleanses our conscience from dead works, and then we can serve the living God. We can worship Him 
from that day forward. We cannot worship Him or serve Him before that. We are there living a miserable life, dead in our trespasses and sins. We are blind and deaf and dumb. That's the way we are before. But after that, we have life in us, that life to serve the living God. That's why it's so important. That's why this is necessary. All of this is necessary for this reason. We cannot please God. We cannot draw near to Him unless first the blood of Christ is applied to our life to change our conscience and to transform dead works to living works to serve the living God. That's the only way. That sequence needs to take place. That's what shows here this importance of the blood of Christ. Now let's return a little bit more to this important blood of Christ. In verse 14, when it says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God? So what is it that we have that is powerful? What is it that we have that is potent? What is it that we have that is able to be applied to our dead condition to make us alive? Remember, we're not dealing with a plant. We're not dealing with the blood of an animal. We're not dealing with anything like that. We're dealing with this blood of Christ. Now, this blood of Christ is powerful because of who Christ is. Fully God and fully man without sin. There he says, without blemish. Without blemish means, just as the animal in the Old Testament could not be a blind animal, could not be a lame animal, could not be a diseased animal, that animal because it had to be an unblemished animal, that signified and symbolized the fact that Jesus would be without sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would be without sin. John 1.29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the way in which Jesus offered himself to God. No sin, no blemish in his life. But also notice, it is the eternal spirit. If you have God the Son and God the Spirit working in unison to provide the perfect sacrifice to the Father, our redemption is secure right there. We have Father, Son, and Spirit right there in one verse, verse 14. The blood of Christ, the eternal Spirit, and offered himself without blemish to God, to God the Father. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all at work in order to ensure and guarantee our salvation. They are the ones that make it possible. The eternal spirit who has eternal life. He is the one who accompanies Christ not only during his lifelong ministry, but also in his death and sacrifice and resurrection and ascension. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of power, the spirit of grace, the eternal spirit working out our eternal redemption. He's called the eternal spirit. Why? Because of, of verse 12, having obtained eternal redemption. The eternal spirit, the Holy Spirit, is what he means. The Holy Spirit, who is also the eternal spirit, named here this way because he's dealing with matters of eternal life. Not physical life, but eternal life. That's why. So, this is our sacrifice. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Let our boast be in nothing else. Let our confidence be in nothing else. He is the only way we can be saved. 
He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.